were I to have a perhaps a tails and a bow tie this morning, it might be more appropriate as we look at the, the majesty of the prophet Isaiah. Calvin's translator wrote this, Isaiah as a prophet is regarded with peculiar veneration as an honest, fearless, and able messenger of the Most High God, boldly reproving nobles and monarchs, denouncing the judgments of heaven against all transgressors, and asserting the claims of the divine law and government above all human authority. But chiefly does he pour out rich instruction concerning the Messiah, whose life and sufferings and death and glorious reign he delineates so faithfully and with such thrilling interest that he has obtained the appellation of the evangelical prophet. And so, no less than Isaiah here, uh, we certainly uh, attempt much in this really overview, if you will, of the progress of redemption in the book of Isaiah. And I would draw your attention really to two main ideas in the book. And really, Calvin's translator brought both of these ideas out. First is this perspective of man uh, from God's perspective. And certainly, one of the interesting things about the book of Isaiah, which would be true of practically every other writing in the Scriptures, is that Isaiah writes unapologetically and very profoundly from the perspective of God. He sees everything from God's perspective and writes everything from God's perspective. This is a very important idea because the reality is is the other aspect of the book of Isaiah is to display who mankind is, not from mankind's perspective, but from God's perspective. And so there is a good bit of repetition in Isaiah in a number of ways. It reminds me a bit of Job in that there's such repetition in Job because we have these same ideas churned over and over and over again. And I can think of no other reason for that other than the fact that we desperately need to hear what it is that Isaiah has to say to us. The, rep- the repetitive aspect of Isaiah is primarily regarding the woes, not only to Israel and Judah, but also to the nations that God will use to bring them into obedience and to destroy pride and to bring about humility in the people of God. But recognizing all the while, as did the occupants and the leaders of, of, of Israel as well as Judah, that the nations that God used were just as wicked as they were. But nonetheless, this is the way that God works. So again, the central theme, the idea of God Himself. Isaiah defines everything in its relation to God. God describes Himself as the one who is high and lifted up and also dwells with the lowly and contrite of heart. His wrath is fierce and His cleansing touch atones for sin. While He is continually moving to bless His people, He will not long tolerate the lackluster worship He has offered from those who owe Him everything and whose lives hang on His every act. God charges the people with the indictment that they have received so much from God and so ought to be grateful. Yet they despise the Holy One of Israel. Ultimate deliverance on earth will not be as they expect, but involves their spiritual cleansing from sin and the release from the bondage of sin. 
And so I draw your attention to, first of all, this idea, man from God's perspective. And again, two ideas basically that we can see in the book of Isaiah as we consider this progress of redemption through the Scriptures. And we look at the magisterial prophecy of Isaiah that spanned many kings. uh, And we know that he was uh, one, again, who was mightily used of God and certainly brings our understanding into a fresh perspective on who this Messiah is is and what shall we expect from him as I mentioned earlier man from God's perspective I draw your attention to chapter 1 verses 2, 3 and 4 chapter 1 verses 2, 3 and 4 now this will be a page turner Uh, I hope that doesn't uh, strike fear in your bones. Isaiah spans 100 pages in my Bible. So uh, we will spend a little bit of time looking through, uh, you know, different chapters in Isaiah. And we begin here as might be appropriate in chapter 1. So let's look at chapter 1. And as we see man from God's perspective, we're introduced. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Isaiah 1, verse 2. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged." Now, we do get some gloom and doom before we get to this major transition in the book, chapter 40, which will comprise, I expect, most of the sermon this morning, Isaiah chapter 40. We're headed for the glory of the Savior, but first, let's see what he has to say about mankind. First of all, of course, they're charged with ingratitude. And ingratitude may be perhaps one of the most noteworthy Senses that we gain and perhaps one of the greatest offenses that we have as individuals. This uh, recognition that those that should be grateful, obviously ourselves, fail in that regard. And gratitude is a powerful, pervasive sin. And again, one of the main ideas here, man from God's perspective, is that we, because of the deceitfulness of our heart, We don't have a clear picture of who we are. We can look in the book of Revelation and see, uh, for instance, this idea that the church or God's people believe one thing about themselves. But God says that actually it's not as you think it is. It's very, very different, actually. You consider yourself rich and well-off and attractive and holy. But in fact, the truth is far different than that. The truth is is far different than that, and that's one of the things that he's saying here. In fact, you despise the Holy One of Israel. Verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. The reality of Israel's spiritual condition, though they think otherwise. And this is one of the interesting things about the deceitfulness of sin, and this is 
one of the challenges of anyone proclaiming the Word of God, and that is this. Our sin is so deceptive that it must be shown to us. It must be shown to us. And the Word of God, of course, does that in application to the Scriptures. But the reality is is that this is why the Lord has called to Himself nothing less than an army of those who would proclaim the Word of God. Because the reality is, is that our sins offend a holy God every single day. And that we, our sins draw us away from this cheerful delight that God has for us to follow Him and enjoy Him in all that we say and do in our relationships relationships and so forth. But our deceitful sins draw us away from that. They corrupt everything around us. And the reality is, is yet we don't believe it. We, we don't think that's really true. We look at the sins of our fathers and the sins of our mothers upon us and we say, well, it's really not so bad. As a matter of fact, I'm going to accommodate that failure and now apply it to the ways of God and begin to make excuses for my own bad habits. Isaiah lays all of this out before us in the Scriptures. So, first of all, we have this concept of ingratitude. I draw your attention to another major issue that Isaiah brings to the fore, and that is this idea that God opposes all manifestations of human pride. Isaiah 23, verse 9. Isaiah 23, verse 9, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. You say, well, I'd like to just to keep a little bit to myself because I think I'm worthy of it. And God says, no. No, I'm going to defile your pride before you. And one of the grand purposes of God is to humble the pride of men. And that leaves many of us with a red dot, as it were, on our foreheads. Because God is looking to destroy and He will not allow this to sit. Particularly, obviously, in His congregation, those who call themselves of the Lord. God opposes all manifestations of human pride. Second Timothy three two, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. We often read the second verse there in 2 Timothy 3, but the first verse says this, But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Yes and amen. Isaiah chapter 2.17 The Bible reveals the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Now why is it that God seems so particularly interested in this sin of pride? 
Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel like He's pointing you out? It's so destructive. Pride is so incredibly destructive. Our first head, Adam, again, we recognize that Uh, certainly one description of the sins of Adam and Eve is that of pride, of arrogance, of this insistence that I will decide what is right and wrong. That I will say what is good and what isn't good. That I will say what is righteous and what is evil. And God has never, He did not then and He has not now, given us the authority to declare what is right and what is wrong. That is all recorded in His Word. And it is up to us to know His Word, and then from His declaration, we can then say, the Lord has said, this is right, and this is wrong. And let us be those who stand on that which is right. Pride is so destructive and deceptive. And we must be shown. Obviously not a rejection of being honorable, but a condemnation of what typically drives the thirst to be found honorable. Self-congratulation and self-exaltation. Turns out we like to be honored. Now children, there are attributes of God. Sometimes we refer to these attributes as communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes. And this is a really big word, isn't it? So communicable means that it it transitions or transfers or it is a certain attribute that we are to put on from God. It's not that we rob Him of it, but it's that He gives it to us. One of those may be, for instance, integrity. One of those may be faithfulness. But there are other attributes that are not communicable. One of those is honor. God says that He'll not give His glory to another. We can't take to ourselves the glory of God. That's a non-communicable attribute. God repays the one who acts in pride. The Scriptures reveal our pride will trap us. It's deceptive. The Bible indicates that our pride stands out to others as a necklace but is hidden from us. The Bible says fearing the Lord is the opposite of pride. The Bible says pride and haughtiness are precursors to destruction and failing. The Bible says pride will bring us low, for the Lord alone is exalted. The Bible says God will put an end to pride. The Bible says that God hates pride. Have you ever destroyed something that you didn't like? Have you ever destroyed a thing that was a major inconvenience in your life? Perhaps it's a tool that fails you. Perhaps it's something else. But even in that case, it's a messy business. And when God destroys pride in men and women and boys and girls, I tell you, it is a messy business. And so we should... Be prepared for that. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that reproof is the way of life. 
And that if we are to live in this life, then we will have to enter into this routine of being reproved. And certainly one of those ideas is that our pride is addressed. A grand purpose of biblical proclamation is to break the pride of man. Associated with this is the idea that God is able to judge people by rendering them deaf and blind to His saving word. I draw your attention to Isaiah 29, verses 9 through 14. Isaiah 29, verses 9 through 14. Again, the first idea here is man from God's perspective. Who are we? What are our inclinations? Where do we fail? What is it that keeps us from God? We've looked primarily at two things, ingratitude and pride. And we see here also the judgment of God. The judgment of God. As we hear this, as we hear the Word of God, as we get up in the morning, we're inclined to think that we can take in the Word of God anytime we want. Right? We're a people who live in a culture. We can listen to a sermon anytime we want. We can... We can access all kinds of things anytime we want, but the reality is is that we will not have God on our terms. The holiness and the loftiness of God absolutely will not allow it. And when we demand and we say, oh, well, I will turn when it's convenient for me. I will look at myself and my own sinfulness when it's convenient for me, when I have a time. Well, there's a grand warning in Isaiah chapter 29 regarding this, beginning in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes and covered your heads. What is he talking about? It's nothing less than what is marked in Proverbs chapter 1. This idea that after we reject God over and over and over again, there is a time when He will not come. Though we decide to call. Because He does not work on our calendar. And He will not work on our calendar. Because He is God. We must come to Him when He may be found. We must address the issues of our lives when He may be found. And so the book of Isaiah certainly is profound in this case. Let's mark our own energy and eagerness to involve ourselves in the difficult and challenging work of being laid open by the Word of God such that we have our sins revealed. Are you accountable to someone who you trust? Who you can hear from? I'm not seeing Christ in you. 
This is a mark away from Christ. This is not an indication of holiness in your life. I encourage you to begin to create habits of holiness, and this isn't one of those. Do you have people in your life that you can say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? When you look at the Word of God, when you read it, how do you read it? Do you pray before you read the Scriptures? Is there this earnestness, Oh God, show me in Your Word who am I? So that I can delight myself in forgiveness and walk with You in humility. You say, well, I worship Him every day. This is one of the things that God so vehemently opposes and is abhorrent to Him, is this false hypocritical worship. He says, bring me no more offerings, for I know your heart. This hypocrisy, this vending machine idea, That I come and worship the Lord. I read a chapter a day and so therefore He owes me. So Isaiah is addressing this very thing. God is able to judge people by rendering them deaf and blind to His saving word. And our only hope is marked in Isaiah 53. Verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him not. Rather, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now we look back at Isaiah 40. I draw your attention to Isaiah 40 now. And so, albeit briefly, we look away from God's perspective of mankind the issues that we must deal with day by day, the things that He is uh, ready and prepared to forgive us of and to assist us in creating new habits. And now we look at God's plan and purpose in redemption. Isaiah chapter 40 and all of the 66 books marks a distinct transition from this one thing, from the woes and who is mankind, to the redemption accomplished in the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40. And what we see in this is this fascinating idea that Isaiah collects up, even the exodus uh, in Israel from Egypt as a type of an exodus from our own sinfulness. And he projects this all the way beyond the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ into the second coming and ultimately into heaven. And so we see that in this, the prophet Isaiah carries all of the history of the Scriptures. As he projects again, he projects the exodus from Egypt all the way into right the, the glory days of those redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is spoken of in this book of Isaiah.
And we can look and get a glimpse of it right here as he begins this transition in Isaiah chapter 40. So I draw your attention to verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In 1 through 11, we have here a prologue, a prophetic promise, and the irresistible certainty of its fulfillment. God isn't saying, I hope this works out. He's saying, this is going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. Verse 1, we have a divine command, not merely to one prophet, but continually addressed to many prophets, that God has not ceased to be their God, even in the midst of wrath. The exile will not last forever. James and Peter address Christian exiles. Paul speaks of us as aliens to this world, as citizens of heaven. That's what the reference here is. In Isaiah 40, verse 1. Verse 2, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Her affliction has become full and has therefore come to an end. Hardship in general has come to an end. Military service, then futile service, is coming to an end. The justice of God is satisfied, of course, in Christ. The statement that Jerusalem has to receive double for her sins is not an indication of unjust rigidity on God's part, but that because of God's compassion, what He had intended to inflict upon Jerusalem is considered super abundant. This is the turning point from wrath to love. God's disposition toward Israel has now changed. And it changes everything. We're looking upon Messiah, the Savior, our Redeemer. Isaiah, in all of the majesty that God can muster in him, we see that he is proclaiming now to us the Messiah. These days of wrath are over. The first two verses here. What's to be expected? What will be the substance of this restoration? What are the conditions of this pardon? Well, the people of Israel and Judah, no doubt, thought a little bit in the same ways, perhaps, that the people in Jerusalem during the days of Christ thought. Oh, we're speaking now of redemption. We're speaking now of God taking up us as a people again. We're speaking now of this thing of of Messiah, of Redeemer. And while there were some pretty bad ideas about that in first century Jerusalem, there also were some pretty foreign ideas about that in Isaiah's day. And we see a correction, really a Uh, coming in with the truth, and this is how it looks. The answer, verse 3, the answer to what's to be expected, what will be the substance of this restoration, what are the conditions of this pardon, the answer comes in the form of a voice crying in the wilderness. Perhaps not what they expected. 
The prophets as God's messengers. The crier is like the forward patrol of the king. Verse 3 of chapter 40, a voice cries in the wilderness. Here is the crier, like the forward patrol of the king, taking care that the way by which the king is to go is put in good condition. We should imagine the crier advancing into the desert and summoning the people to come and to make a road through it. The prophets as God's messengers bring intermediate fulfillment of this promise. The latest writing prophet Malachi affirms this very idea and all four gospel writers claim John the Baptist as the ultimate fulfillment of this one who prepares the way of the king. With every subsequent messenger of God pressing the same message upon those who await the final coming of the king. Now, it's important that we recognize here that the primary illustration, the primary metaphor is that, is that of spirituality. It isn't that uh, Old Testament Israel couldn't make roads, but that's not what Isaiah is referring to here. He's not calling upon the civil engineers of his day to do their work. This is a spiritual preparation. And as such, we should take it in as a spiritual word to us. The summons proceeds in a commanding tone. It points to the encouragement of those that are cast down. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up. It speaks to the humiliation of the self-righteous and the self-secure. Every mountain and hill be made low. It speaks to the changing of dishonesty dishonesty into simplicity. The uneven ground shall become level. And the idea here, again, is that that the biblical alternative to the complex web of dishonesty and lack of integrity is simplicity. And lastly, the rough places of plain. The unapproachable haughtiness into submission. So we can locate ourselves in one of these places, perhaps more than one. A valley that needs to be lifted up. There was much difficulty in Isaiah's day. It wasn't an easy place to live. Those who had power often abused it. There were some very bad ideas about who God was and about what He intended to do in His day. And Isaiah is making clear the situation. And He is including all in this. But let's not lose sight of the fact that this is preparation to receive the Lord. And this is something that has to happen in our life in a continual process. Again, we won't have God on our terms. We have to prepare our hearts even before we read the Word and desire for its effectiveness in our lives. We cannot demand of Him that He work in us if in haughtiness and pride we involve ourselves with others. There is preparation that must occur. But we also know that the Lord is favorable upon us. He looks upon us kindly. The Father in heaven shepherds those who are His in a tender and kindly way. He doesn't keep from us 
that which is necessary for us to hear from Him effectively and lovingly. He is a Father who loves us. Verse 5, when the way is prepared for the Lord, then His glory will be revealed. God's glory will certainly reveal itself, provided Israel does what it's summoned to perform. God, of course, performing the soul work, empowering His people through the Holy Spirit. We cannot experience God's glory on our own terms. There must be humbling soul preparation. In verses 6-8, through eight, a second voice is heard. A voice, a voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is like the first wave of God's persuading arguments that what He is calling upon His messengers to proclaim will certainly come to pass. While mankind is the crown of creation, it's but like grass. Or at best, the flower of the field. Now we can look at Psalm 1 and we can get another idea of a comparison. A comparison is made in Psalm 1 to a tree and to chaff. And that's the faithful man compared to the unfaithful man. But that's not what's being described in Isaiah 40. What's being described in Isaiah 40 is man and God. And in light of God, and in light of the Word of God, man is like a flower. Not a flower that you maintain in your home. No, no. It's more, it's more delicate than that. It's a flower of the field. Here today and gone tomorrow. But he doesn't intend to strike fear in us because of it. But what he intends to do is for us to see the majesty of God and his purposes in our lives. His words will certainly come to pass. A word not merely of temporary restoration, but a promise of permanent eternal restoration. You see, of all people, while we think lofty thoughts of ourselves, we also recognize our frailties. In our most lucid moments, we recognize that we are but grass of the field. And we also may be inclined to say that everything else is like grass of the field. But it isn't. God's Word is permanent. It endures forever. What He says will come to pass. His love upon us is permanent. His calling to us is permanent. The transition that He begins in our life when He brings us in union with the Lord Jesus Christ such that we transition from one who was drawn away from God to one that was drawn to Him. That also is a permanent situation. The Bible says, He who began a good work in you will complete it. Verses 9-11 through When God's people have Him in the midst of themselves after their long period of brokenness restored to prominence as a community, 
raising her voice with fearless strength to proclaim the joyful appearance of their God. You see here, what we have is nothing less than Isaiah proclaiming, look here, the original purpose of God's people in Israel, the physical nation of Israel, was to proclaim the glories and majesty of God. And what God is saying here in this first line is that it will be so. You will finally enter into that which I have called you to. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. No longer fear those who are in opposition to me, your God, and to you as God's people. You now be confident in God. I am with you in every way. And so you can fully enter into that which God has called you to. Not only, obviously, to your own soul. Behold your God, but to those around you. Behold your God. When God's people have Him in the midst of themselves, after this long period of brokenness, they can proclaim with fearless strength that they are God's people. And His people as a single unit are seen here proclaiming the glory of their King. This is the very idea behind the idea that we're called about in the New Testament to evangelize. and has to do with the process of smoothing, of unfolding, then making glad with joyful news. Before now, Jerusalem was in despair, bowed down with anguish under the weight of the punishment of her sins, standing in need of consolation. But her God is with her now in ways that He wasn't before. His disposition has changed toward her. She can now enter into her true vocation, that of being a herald of good news. God is seen here in His essence, strength and energy, irresistibly bringing into subjection to Him or overthrowing that which opposes Him. This is the law of the Gospel. It's the law and the Gospel. God is irresistible. He's not like us. When He calls us to Himself, we delightfully follow. His irresistibility is different often than the way we understand it. He changes our heart. He gives to us longings for Himself. And His purposes will always go fulfilled. We see His tenderness here in the coming shepherd. Now, verse 12 marks an interlude in the proclamation of the people may be brought into full consciousness of the glory of God. So we see here that they're redeemed to be this herald of good news from the majesty on high. And we see here again that God will remind man of who He is. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills 
in a balance. No doubt he's speaking about the creation. The earth spins pretty fast. Think about all of the ways that the earth could wobble if it weren't balanced by God. Think about the counterbalance of the oceans and the mountains. I'll leave it to you to figure out how this spiraling mass is maintained. Man builds a multi-story building and commends himself. God creates the universe of nothing. And this is what he's referring to in Isaiah 40. Just in case we forgot who it is that we're dealing with. This is the God who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand. The Bible says in verse 13, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him His counsel? Peter attempted to manage Christ. Will we be asked of the Master and Commander of the universe how to do something? That didn't work out for Job either. Whom did he consult, that is God, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, a comparison of God and man. Verse 15. Perhaps the most remembered illustration of what is small and what isn't small. A drop in the bucket compared to the rest of the contents. The nation's those powerful forces that stand in opposition to you, O Israel, and to you, O Judah, those powerful nations that make your knees tremble, they are as a drop in the bucket. Not an empty bucket, but a full one. And this is what he's saying. How little can man hold in his hand? This gets to the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. Limitless in power. The nations of the earth are like dust on the scales. Dust on the scales. We weigh things at my house. We weigh things, even of a few pounds, in which the dust on the scales don't matter. But God is saying here, that man and the nations are like dust on the scales. That doesn't mean that we're meaningless, but it's a representation of His omnipotence, of His almighty power, of His majesty, of what He knows, of who He is, of what He has done, of His purposes, of His, of his infinitesimal capabilities, that He knows all, that He does all, that He's the initiator of all things, that He's the one who calls us to Himself, that He can make that which is darkness, light, that He can make that which is old, new. He can make that which is destroyed live again. He can bring the dead to life. This is God, the great shepherd of our souls. God is above even the greatest leaders of the earth who are as grasshoppers to Him. The Bible says in verse 22, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
By the way, if you were thinking that the Bible indicates the earth is flat, look no further than Isaiah 40, 22. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You put up a tent, that was a challenge, wasn't it? God creates the majesty as simply as putting up a tent that you're familiar with. Verses 27 to 31. Turning from addressing the foolishness of idolatry, now the Almighty addresses those of little faith, those who are cast down, but yet desire salvation. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And you see, even this very idea of God may lend a wrong idea to us. You see, we, we consider, we, we sometimes have the occasion to, to rub elbows with those of lofty positions. It's not your boss or your boss's boss, but your boss's boss's boss. And you say, what does he know? And God says, ah, it's not not like that either. You see, I am lofty and high and lifted up, and the people who were lowly, who were fearful that their God would miss them, he says, no, I'm not like that. I know you too. I see you. I know where you are. I'm for you. I will contend for you. I will call you to myself. I will, yes, give you a new heart. I will, as the Lord Jesus said, I will fulfill my promise. Those who come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I see who you are. I know what you're going through. These figured that God had completely turned away from heaven in His wrath, never to return. He seemed to take no notice of their oppressors or have any interest in vindication or justice. Verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God? The Creator of the ends of the earth, He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Verse 28 crushes this human calculation to powder. This idea that God doesn't see them. That God somehow grows faint and He gets tired. But God doesn't grow faint. He needs no one. He needs no one to inform Him of the present state of affairs. When you pray to God, please don't think that you're telling Him something He doesn't already know. Faith is all that's needed to be in union with this all-powerful God. The Bible says in verse 29, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait in the Lord, for the Lord, shall renew their strength. What the Lord is saying is this, We know the strength of young men. And they faint in difficulty. 
But those who are united to me will not faint. They will not grow weary. Those who are waiting upon God, waiting as His perfect plan unfolds, they have a continual supply of strength through their union with Him. These are not waiting for strength. They're fully entering into their vocations in the imperfect world, continually renewed by God. If you're waiting for strength, you're backing up. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of faithfulness. Now is the day to follow Him. Now is the day to create faithful habits. Now is the day to repent of your sins. If you're waiting on the strength to do that, you are as a drowning man, casting off those who would help you every moment. No, I don't want that life raft. No, I don't want that one to help me. No, I don't want that promise from the Lord. And there will come a time when there will be no more help. So union with God, in union with God through faith, we have this continual supply of strength. Not strength to enjoy the unbridled lusts of our own sinful affections, but strength to faithfully live in this generation. Strength to actively wait upon God's final consummation. This is the concept illustrated in Luke 12 of the servants waiting for their master to come home. Not asleep or ministering the other servants, or rather mistreating the other servants, but actively working at their master's business. What does the strength of God accomplish? Well, I can assure you of this. It doesn't accomplish a trouble-free life. It does not banish difficulty. It does not make us immune to the harshness of the world nor does it make us impervious to sorrow as that which is often characterizing our lives here. But He gives us the ability to, in our vocations as God's people, to quietly, courageously, and confidently motor through the difficulties, the challenges which are created by a loving Savior to build in us steadfastness and a greater joy in our Redeemer. We motor through believing God in word and practice, taking difficulty in stride and trusting in God, working through faithful, courageous, transparent trust. That's what we do. God says, hold on. God says, I am with you. God says, hold fast. God says, I am there. God says, this is my way. God says, this is my purpose. God says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. God says, when you follow me, you're doing right, though it seems hard. No reason to look back. We go forward. We press on. God says, go this way. Lot lingered. His wife was turned to salt. We go forward. We follow Him. Courageously walking with Him, recognizing all the while that in union with Christ, we can do all things. Let us pray.